Uh, first, I'd like to thank uh, Liz David Barrett and Professor Arise and everyone involved in the Extra Legal Governance Institute for organizing this event and all of you for coming here today. I'm looking forward to your comments and questions. I should note from the outset that I'm beginning to lose my voice. I'll do my best to project it for those of you in the back, but unlike what was suggested to me earlier, this is not my Marlon Brando impersonation. I'll, I'll, spare, I'll spare all of you of that. So in this paper, Pete Leeson and I provide a rational choice explanation as to why criminal enterprises are organized the way that they are. Now our theory begins with the observation that criminals are capable of using violence or coercion to enforce contractual arrangements in a way that is not available to legitimate enterprises. Now this is particularly significant in the context of collusive arrangements, whereas legitimate or law-abiding enterprises, in the absence of ability to use violence or coercion to enforce such arrangements, cartels tend to break down due to problems of chiseling, whereas criminals can use violence or coercion to maintain the sustainability of collusive agreements. Now, our second observation is that the potential profitability of using violence to enforce collusive agreements is in direct relation to the degree of contestability in a criminal industry. The greater the degree of contestability or competition, the greater are the potential returns from enforcing a collusive arrangement. Whereas in criminal industries that exhibit very low degrees of contestability, if there simply aren't very many uh, criminal producers in a given market, then the potential benefits from enforcing a collusive agreement are relatively lower. Now, the way in which criminals use violence to enforce collusive agreements is by organizing under the auspices of a hierarchically structured firm. There is, however, a cost to doing that. That being what we refer to as the cost of boss self-dealing, or what's referred to in the industrial organization literature as managerial opportunism. The ability for the bosses or managers of hierarchically organized criminal firms to use their coercive authority in an opportunistic manner um, to the detriment of the profitability of the criminal enterprise as a whole. So our theory is thus that in highly contestable criminal industries, uh, the trade-off the criminals face favors the benefits of collusion as being greater than the, the cost of boss self-dealing, and thus criminals organize in a hierarchical manner, whereas in less contestable criminal industries where the costs of boss self-dealing outweigh the benefits of collusion, criminals organize in a flat manner. Now what we observe is that there's significant variation in the way in which criminals organize their activity, with criminal firms tending to fall towards one of two ends of an organizational spectrum, some exhibiting hierarchical properties, whereas others exhibit more flat characteristics. Now by hierarchy, we simply mean that there are two or more layers of power and decision making within the criminal firm, one comprised of an upper level of autonomous decision makers that direct the extractive or productive activities of the criminal firm, and a lower level of employees whose criminal activity activity is directed and regulated by that upper level of autonomous decision makers. Now the example that we discuss in this paper is the Sicilian Mafia as they were involved in the industry of private protection. Here we have the uh, typical example of the pyramid-like structure of a hierarchical criminal firm, in this case a mafia family, where at the head we have a single individual, a boss, that regulates the criminal activities of all the various organizational layers below him. I'll explain this particular organization in more detail later on. By flat organization, we simply mean that there, are, there is no difference in the layers within the criminal enterprise. There is only one relevant layer of organization within the criminal firm, where every member of the criminal enterprise can participate in the day-to-day decision-making activities of the criminal firm. What to steal, who to steal it from, how to steal it, and so on. The example that we discuss in this paper is the Pirates of the Caribbean in the early 18th century, who organized in constitutional workers' democracies. 
Here we have the requisite Johnny Depp picture. I, I should note as a, as a side note, much of the comments and questions that I get in this paper uh, revolve around the extent to which our theory corresponds to scenes in famous movies involving these organizations. So I, I want to preempt that as much as possible in this presentation. So here we have the typical organization of a pirate crew from around this era, whereas you see that it's organized in a very flat manner, where every member of the criminal firm participates in the day-to-day decision-making activities of the organization as a whole. I'll explain that how even though, later on, how even though pirate crews had officers, such as the captain and the quartermaster, um, that authority of these officers was incredibly constrained in relation to a more hierarchical criminal firm. Now, the literature and the economics of crime, to the extent that it deals with theory of the firm type questions, uh, tends to assume, assume or posit that organized crime is hierarchical in nature. Following Schelling's work in the early 1980s, the economists Abedinsky and Skapardas indeed define organized crime as criminal activity that takes place under the auspices of a hierarchically structured firm. Now, this definition is inadequate for several reasons. The first being that it rules out of court or inscrutable by economic analysis criminal enterprises that are organized in a non-hierarchical fashion. And perhaps the most important reason why this definition is inadequate is because it assumes the very organizational feature that we wish to explain. Namely, why are some criminal enterprises organized hierarchically and why are some criminal enterprises organized in a non-hierarchical fashion? So it's also worth noting why the traditional neoclassical theory of the firm provides an inadequate explanation for criminal organization. Um, starting with Coase's work all the way up through Auchin and Demsett's seminal paper in the early 1970s, they note that there is no ability or the ability to use violence to enforce contractual arrangements is ruled out of court by assumption. As they state, the firm has no power of fiat, no authority, no disciplinary action, any different in the slightest degree from ordinary market contracting between any two people. The traditional neoclassical classical theory of the firm is that the firm is created as a nexus of contracts to facilitate team production. But there are two, two reasons why this is an inadequate explanation for criminal organization. The first being that this ability to use violence or coercion to enforce contractual arrangements is a defining characteristic of criminal activity. The second, as we'll get to when I discuss uh, hierarchically based criminal firms in very contestable industries, we'll observe that criminal firms come into existence in the absence of team production. So what we have is that there, there are two um, characteristics of criminal firms that do not fit the traditional neoclassical theory of the firm, and obviously criminals are operating outside the context of a formal legal framework. Now, this phrase, blood in, blood out, which is very famous in uh, the Sicilian Mafia or La Cosa Nostra, illustrates just how important this role for violence and coercion is in affecting the organization of criminal enterprises. What this means is that a member of the criminal firm tries to defect on the cartel or otherwise leave the criminal industry, they'll suffer the blood out portion of this phrase, which needless to say, an employee of a legitimate enterprise such as Walmart doesn't face these sorts of conditions when deciding to, to leave to a different, uh, different form of employment. Now, it's important to note that this phrase and variants of it appear in a wide range of criminal organizations. American street gangs, such as the Crips and the Bloods, prison gangs, such as Nuestro Familia, the Mexican Mafia, MS-13, all have similar phrases to this phrase that we find in La Cosa Nostra. Um, also, the uh, Japanese Yakuza and Chinese triads also have similar phrases which indicate just how important this role of violence or coercion is for influencing criminal organization. Now, in order to measure the degree of contestability or um, the degree of competition in a criminal industry, we use the proxy of startup costs. Now, 
the, high, the logic is that the higher these startup costs are, the higher the natural barriers to entry in a criminal industry are, and thus the lower the degree of natural contestability that we would expect to observe. Now, we break down contestability into three different components, the first being physical capital requirements. The higher these physical capital requirements are in order to successfully engage in a particular criminal activity, the higher the natural barriers to entry are and the lower the degree of natural contestability we would expect to see. Criminal industries such as heroin production, as I'll explain later, have extremely high physical capital requirements and thus the natural degree of contestability is very low, whereas in criminal industries such as pickpocketing, for example, that don't require any sort of physical capital investment, we expect the natural degree of contestability to be very high. Now, the second component of startup costs that we examine are labor requirements. And this is perhaps the most important component of startup costs. But what we mean by this is the extent to which team production is necessary to successfully engage in a criminal activity. So the business of uh, piracy in the uh, Caribbean of the early 18th century, for example, team production is especially important. We're once again referring to an industry such as pickpocketing. We observe criminal activity taking place in the total absence of team production requirements. Has anybody seen the Ocean's 11, 12 movies? 13. Uh, that that went, went over just about as well as it did in the last place that I did that. Apparently, movie references don't, don't travel across seas. But anyways, I, I highly recommend you watch it. It's a, it's a good movie, but certain complicated criminal activity requires team production. And criminal industries that require such team production have much higher natural barriers to entry, thus the degree of contestability in them is much lower. Now, the third component of startup costs that we discuss is human capital requirements. This simply refers to the, the requisite degree of skill and experience necessary to successfully engage in a particular criminal activity. Computer hacking, for example, requires an exceptional degree of skill and experience to be any good at, whereas an industry such as, not to pick on the pickpocketers, but once again, anybody who has ever been stolen from or bullied as a child can attest to the fact that simple robbery does not require a great deal of uh, skill or experience to successfully successfully engage in. Now, our theory is that the more contestable criminal industry is, the greater the need to collude. However, it's worth noting why an organizational solution is necessary for criminals to profitably engage in collusion. Now, just to briefly explain why hierarchy is a necessary condition for collusion in a criminal context, or why hierarchy is the most profitable way in which criminals can enforce collusion, it's important to note the benefits that hierarchy um, gives to, to criminal organizations. The first is that it avoids what we term the trembling hand problem. So imagine a criminal firm that is organized in a non-hierarchical fashion that is trying to enforce a collusive arrangement, where each individual criminal is required to use violence to punish members of the cartel who defect on the collusive arrangement. Now this is a very unstable equilibrium in that the use of violence on behalf of any one member of the criminal firm could be misinterpreted as an act of aggression by other members starting a Hobbesian war of all against all. Now, another reason why this equilibrium is um, not very uh, sustainable is that there is a free riding problem in the context of enforcing the collusive agreement. So any one member, if each member of a flatly organized uh, cartel um, were to use violence to punish a member who is defecting, they would only be able to internalize one divided by n of the overall benefit of that, where they would incur the total cost of enforcement. So thus there is a free riding problem in any one member of the cartel in enforcing the uh, collusive agreement. So hierarchy solves both of these problems by establishing the top, the top of the pyramid of the organization as both residual claimant and third party enforcer. Given that all members of the hierarchical firm cede coercive authority 
to the top of their organization, what that does is it provides the boss of that organization not only with a sufficient incentive to enforce collusion within the hierarchically structured criminal firm, but also as given that he has rights to residual claimancy, he has a sufficient incentive to block new entrants from entering that particular industry. So hierarchy is a method to overcome these problems that would otherwise exist with um, collusive agreements, and thus is the most profitable way for firms to enforce collusion at the firm level, blocking new entrants, but it's also important to note how hierarchy facilitates inter-firm collusion. So imagine a criminal industry with a hundred, hundred different potential producers or a hundred criminals acting within the firm. Instead of having each one of them need to come to an agreement on uh, forming a cartel, what hierarchy does is say that we have two firms of 50, instead of having a hundred criminals that would need to organize and engage in uh, contracts, we only have two individuals that need to engage in the collusive arrangement. So in that sense, hierarchy drastically reduces the transaction costs of inter-firm collusion. Now, once again, the more contestable the criminal industry is, the greater the need is to um, collude via hierarchy, but it's important to note that not only are criminals seeking the monopoly profits of collusion, but in extremely contestable criminal industries, criminals need to overcome what I like to refer to as the tragedy of the criminal commons. So the logic here is very similar to Mansur Olson's story of the roving versus the stationary bandit, and that in exceptionally contestable criminal industries, there is a potential over-extraction problem with the common pool resource of victims. So in extremely contestable criminal industries, it could be within the incentives of each individual criminal producer to over-extract from the common pool resource of victims until in future periods the sustainability of that common pool resource of victims might not exist anymore. So in order to overcome this over-extraction problem, uh, criminals in extremely contestable industries have an even greater incentive to engage in these collusive arrangements. Um, so once again, the benefits of hierarchy in that it, as, are in that it provides um, collusion inside the firm and a proper incentive to block outside entrance, and also it facilitates inter-firm collusion. But although the benefits of collusion in the criminal context are more significant than they are in the legitimate context, the costs of boss self-dealing or managerial opportunism are also particularly severe in the criminal context. Um, Needless to say, the employee of a, of a mafia firm or family has a lot more to worry about in terms of boss self-dealing than, than an employee of Walmart does. So in this case, it's important to note that it's not an automatic decision for criminals to organize in a hierarchical fashion in order to capture the benefits of collusion. Given that the benefits of collusion are more within reach in a criminal context, it's also important to note that the costs of boss self-dealing are also um, more severe. So our theory is thus that in highly contestable industries with very low natural barriers to entry, the benefits of collusion outweigh the costs of boss self-dealing, thus criminals organize hierarchically, whereas in less contestable criminal industries where the, uh, the costs of boss self-dealing outweigh the benefits of collusion, and thus criminals organize in a flat manner. Now, it's also worth stating how our theory can predict the dynamic organizational evolution of any particular criminal industry over time. So our theory predicts that as one criminal enterprise transitions into different criminal industries that face different degrees of contestability, their organizational form should change in response to this. Now, the first uh, criminal enterprise that we examine is the Sicilian Mafia, or La Cosa Nostra, which, as Professor Gambetta illustrates, was traditionally in the business of private protection. Now, it's important to note that the startup costs of this particular industry were notoriously low. In terms of physical capital, all the... Oops. My apologies. 
<laughs> All right, there we go. Try not to touch that button again. <laughs> but what's important to note here is that the startup costs of the industry of private protection were notoriously low. In terms of physical capital requirements, all that was required is that one individual was able to employ the most basic means of intimidation or uh, impl um, um, inflicting violence on others. So in many cases, what we, what we observe is that only uh, a gun or a shotgun was necessary, or in the absence of that, simply being a physically intimidating individual was often enough to successfully engage in this criminal activity. So in that sense, the physical capital requirements were very low, thus the degree of contestability very high. Now, perhaps the most important component of startup costs, that being labor requirements, um, were notoriously absent in this industry as well. What's important to note is that the uh, genesis of the um, private protection industry in Sicily in the early and mid-19th century, we had individual producers of private protection, referred to as Pepe. So in that sense, we had the potential for each individual criminal to be their own criminal, to be their own firm, their own criminal enterprise. So what we have is we have protection firms uh, coming into existence in the total absence of team, team uh, labor requirements. So in that sense, the startup costs are very low in terms of labor requirements, thus the degree of contestability is very high. Now in terms of human capital requirements, uh, these were also notoriously low in the business of private protection. It is fairly easy to employ basic means of intimidation or coercion on other individuals, but also it's important to note that significant evidence exists that the customers of mafia families sought out their services. So in that sense, the skill and experience required in identifying information or knowledge about their customer bases was not very high because their customers sought them out. So in that sense, all three components of startup costs were exceptionally low in this criminal industry, uh, and thus the degree of contestability was uh, very high. So consistent with our theory, what we observe is significant organizational hierarchy within La Cosa Nostra. The, the, the individual firm or family was organized in a pyramid-like shape where the boss or capo used violence to enforce collusive agreements inside of the firm and um, to block outsiders. Here, consistent with uh, Godfather Part 1, we have the boss at the top of the organization and many layers or buffers that separate the boss between soldiers. So, so the boss is capable of using violence to, in, to punish members of the cartel who defect at lower levels, whereas the lower level soldiers or men of honor are not capable of using violence to move up the organization. Now, another one of my favorite scenes from that movie, and it's important to note that although this is the um, American Mafia, it also, if you remember what this particular scene illustrates, is that it's the bosses of various Mafia families coming together to collude, to, to uh, share resources, and to restrict their criminal activity uh, within their own mutual interest. Now, what we observe is that as La Cosa Nostra transitioned between different criminal industries, their organization changed as a result of this. So as they became involved in the industry of heroin production and distribution in the early 1970s, we observed that their organization changed dramatically. Now, the reason for this is that the startup costs of this particular industry were much higher than they were in the industry of private protection, both in terms of human capital requirements, physical capital requirements, and labor capital requirements. All three of these components were much higher in the industry of heroin production and distribution. 
Uh, just to illustrate this point, I have a quote here from Shawcross and Young, which kind of indicates just how complex this industry was. A bad chemist with poor equipment could turn out heroin of such poor quality that there would be difficulty in selling it. And if he was a real amateur, then getting the temperature wrong by just a few degrees during the heating stage would result in a lethal explosion. So in that sense, the and if any of you have a purely academic interest in the production of heroin, you can email me later and I'll make sure that you get the slides. But what's important to note here is that the startup costs of this particular industry are exceptionally high. Thus, the expected degree of natural contestability in this particular industry is very low. And thus, what we observe consistent with our theory is that the organization of this particular criminal industry did not, place, did not take place under the auspices of the hierarchically structured mafia family. What we observe is that individual men of honor from different mafia families engaged in very flat organization, even with non-mafiosi, such as the chemists of the French Connection, uh, in very flatly organized criminal enterprises because the, boss of co the costs of boss self-dealing were no longer worth incurring. Now, before I continue on, it's important to note that there is a, uh, a distinct difference between the natural degree of contestability in a criminal enterprise, so what we, we would expect given the startup costs, and the observed ex post degree of contestability. So if you were to take a snapshot of the Cosa Nostra at 1950, for say, what you would observe, uh, contrary, seemingly contrary to what I'm saying, is that there's a very low degree of contestability. But what's important to note is that that is not the natural state of affairs. The natural state of affairs in the industry for private protection is a very high degree of contestability. The fact that we would observe a low degree of contestability in 1950, for example, is a very fact, is a very product of the successful collusive arrangements of individual mafia families. So there's a very important distinction between the natural degree of contestability and the degree of contestability that we observe after the successful collusive efforts of criminals in that industry. So the second criminal organization that we discuss in this paper is the Pirates of the Caribbean of the early 18th century, which, as my co-author illustrates in, in his excellent book, The Invisible Hook, which I highly recommend you buy if you haven't already, they were in the business of maritime marauding. Um, and the startup costs of this particular industry were relatively high compared to others. In terms of physical capital, pirates required um, a ship that was uh, significantly larger and also much better armed than the um, merchant ships that they were attacking. They needed to be able to employ overwhelming force to elicit an immediate surrender on behalf of the merchants that they were attacking. They required sails, rigging, um, an ordinance and provisions sufficient to stay at sea for extended periods of time. Uh, it's, it's important to note also that only one pirate crew of about 30 during the golden age of piracy, Major Stead Bonnet, actually purchased his own ship. Uh, the majority, every other case, uh, stole their ship, but it's still important to note just how difficult it is to steal a ship of sufficient magnitude to engage successfully in the business of maritime marauding. Which brings me to my, our second component of uh, startup costs, that being labor requirements, which in, in this context are certainly the most important. So team production is incredibly significant in the context of uh, the, the criminal industry that the Caribbean pirates were dealing in. The average crew was a little bit more than 80 men, which indicates a very high threshold to uh, successfully overwhelm or employ overwhelming force on merchant ships. So imagine a criminal industry where we have 160 potential criminals. In the business industry of private protection, for example, we have the potential for 160 competing criminal enterprises, whereas in the context of maritime marauding, we have the, the uh, potential for only two. So in that, in that extent, given that the startup costs in terms of labor requirements are much higher, the natural degree of contestability is much lower. 
In terms of human capital, it's important to note that it required a great deal of skill and experience on behalf of every single pirate in terms of uh, naval combat, navigation, working the sails and rigging of the ship, but also in terms of finding and hunting prey. So unlike the customers of La Cosa Nostra, for example, merchant ships were less than keen about being attacked by pirates. So in that sense, pirate crews were searching for needles that were moving in, in a, a haystack that covered two-thirds of the Earth's surface. So needless to say, it requires a great deal of skill and experience to understand where the likely locations of merchant ships were. Merchant ships changed their routes in accordance to where pirates were likely to attack, so predicting exactly where merchant ships were required a great deal of skill and experience. It's also important to note that a favorite a tactic of uh, ships of the line of the British Royal Navy was to disguise themselves as merchant ships in the hope that they would elicit pirate a attacks. So in this sense, it, each pirate required of their crewmates an exceptional degree of skill and experience to identify at a great distance whether a ship on the horizon was indeed a merchant ship or whether it was a ship of the line disguised. So in that sense, in terms of all three components of startup costs, the natural barriers to entry in this industry are very high, thus the degree of contestability very low. Consistent with our theory, what we observe is a distinct organizational flatness. Pirates organized into workers' constitutional democracies where every member of the criminal firm participated in the day-to-day decision-making activities of the criminal industry. Each member of the uh, pirate crew made uh, participated in democratic decisions such as selecting the officers, removing the officers if wanted, where to set sail for prey, whether to override the captain or quartermaster, or whether to modify their constitution. It's also important to note that there was no inter-firm collusion, which is of particular significance because had pirates wanted to engage in inter-firm collusion, it would have been much easier for them to do it than it was for the mafia families of La Cosa Nostra. They, this is because they had a common base of operation in New Providence Island in the Bahamas. So in that sense, instead of the Lloyds of London, they could have created a Blackbeards of the Bahamas, but they didn't. The reason that they didn't is not because they weren't able to, it was because the cost of boss self-dealing outweighed the benefits of colluding via hierarchy, and thus pirates organized in a very flat fashion. So once again, even though pirates had officers such as the captain and the quartermaster, the um, authority or the ability for these officers to engage in boss self-dealing was extremely restrained. Even though the captain of a pirate crew had authority during times of battle, if the captain were so saucy as to find himself wanting to abuse that authority, he would find himself either marooned or killed immediately after battle. And indeed, we've observed this in a number of cases. So once again, the contributions of this particular um, paper are to show the inadequacy of the neoclassical theory of the firm in the criminal context, to illustrate the role that violence and coercion plays in criminal organization, and also to explain the emergence of criminal firms in the absence of team production, which is something that the neoclassical theory does not predict. And our theory give, provides an explanation as to why criminals organize the way that they do and how criminal enterprises respond to different contexts and different criminal industries and how their organizational form adapts. Thank you. <laughs>